This is Morning Edition from NHPR. I'm Rick Ganley, and it's time for the New Hampshire News Recap. Let's get into this week's top headlines. Joining me now are Ethan DeWitt from the New Hampshire Bulletin and NHPR's Mara Hoplamazian. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Rick. Let's start with you, Mara. You reported this week that Cheshire County is about to become the first county in New Hampshire to launch a community power program. Mara, what does that mean for residents here? Yeah, so towns and cities across the state have already started up these programs, but Cheshire is the first county to do it. This means um, residents and towns that are participating in that countywide community power program will get enrolled on an opt-out basis. So they'll get a piece of mail in, uh, explaining the system and, and decide if they want to opt out. If they don't opt out, they'll be opted in. So starting in November, um, the community power program will buy electricity on behalf of those residents instead of the traditional system where the utility company buys power for people. Um, the utility company will still deliver the power, but proponents of the system say it can help people get cheaper electricity and support more renewables. And the Community Power Coalition says the county's program could make it easier for towns in Cheshire to adopt community power because they can join the county program instead of standing up their own. Yeah. And of course, the big thing here is will it lower energy rates? Um, how much will it really change energy pricing and options for these towns? Yeah. So right now, the Community Power Coalition's basic rate is about $10 cheaper than ever sources per month, um, according to the coalition's website. So uh, customers can choose that, or they can also choose higher rates to bump up how much renewable energy they want to support with their electric bill. There's options for 50% or 100% renewable, which have slightly higher rates. Now, we're talking a lot about the high cost of, of energy and the days are getting colder. Last winter, high prices were really tough for a lot of people across the Granite State. What help is available for people's energy bills in general statewide? Yeah, there's a, f- a few different kinds of help. Um, the biggest bucket is through a federal program known as LIHEAP, the Low Income Home Energy Assistance Program. Anybody making less than 60% of the statewide median income can get help with heating through that. Um, those applications go through the community action agencies, and they've been encouraging people to apply now before it gets super cold. Um, folks I've talked to with the community action agencies say, even if you don't think your income will qualify, you should still apply. Often through the application process, people find out they actually do qualify. Um, and and folks can find um, those community action agencies at this website, capnh.org. Yeah, it's important to know there is assistance available. Yep. yep. Ethan, uh, New Hampshire House Democrats introduced a bill that would require the attorney general's office to tell lawmakers if it believes a representative has moved out of their district. Now, why are Democrats pushing for the, for this bill right now? What, what's the problem they're trying to solve? So last month, a Republican representative, Troy Murner, resigned, and that came after the attorney general's office sent a letter to the House Speaker's office informing the Speaker's office that that representative, Troy Murner, um, no longer, uh, they had evidence to believe that he no longer was residing in the House district that he was supposed to represent. He had been living in Lancaster, um, but had moved uh, sometime in August of 2022 to Carroll, which is a county 30 miles away and outside of his district. Mm -hmm. And the attorney general's office had been investigating him since about March of this year, 2023. So the attorney general's office informed the House Speaker and the House Speaker uh, requested that um, Representative Murner resign. He did resign. But Democrats are upset that the attorney general didn't notify the House sooner because it appears that had they done so, he might have resigned uh, in the middle of the session this year and might not have uh, taken part in a few votes. The House is very narrowly divided, and there were some votes that were decided by one House vote. Mm -hmm. And so Democrats are arguing if they had known earlier, then those votes might have gone differently and that the attorney general should have 
uh, informed the House sooner. Yeah, with every vote counting. What are the objections that that other House members have towards this bill? Yeah, so the bill itself, I should say, uh, hasn't been filed yet, but basically they got a a, a special extension because they've missed the deadline. And so it will be, we'll see the actual text of the bill. Apparently the bill will require the Attorney General to notify the legislature promptly if they ever have an investigation and find that a member may not be living in their district. Um, And so Democrats argue that this is, you know, a common sense thing that won't go beyond that one question. Does the member live in their district? Some Republicans have raised objections, though, that if the attorney general's office is investigating a member for another reason, then they maybe want to keep that investigation under wraps while they're gathering information that a law that would require them to disclose that might interfere with that investigative process. Even if they only inform the legislature about the residency, the lawmaker might then know they're being investigated and that might change their behavior. Uh, And so while the bill has been approved to move forward, there's some question as to whether it will actually have support next year. And what's the AG's office saying about this? Yeah, the, the attorney general's office first of all, won't comment on the investigation itself into Murner. He's being investigated uh, for also voting in Lancaster when uh, he uh, may not have resided there, may not have a domicile. Um, and he's also being investigated for uh, potentially fraudulently using uh, the mileage that all House lawmakers uh, use to get reimbursed for traveling down to Concord and having 30 miles more of mileage than he should have based on where he currently lived. But they won't comment on that investigation. They did comment on the potential bill and said that they think that the legislature should not, inv- uh, you know, that it's a that's a separation of powers issue and that the legislature shouldn't uh, interfere with attorney general investigations. Interesting. Okay. This is Morning Edition on NHPR. We're recapping this week's news with the New Hampshire Bulletin's Ethan DeWitt and NHPR's Mara Hoplamasian. If you've got questions, you can email us, voices at nhpr.org. Help inform our reporting. Mara, you reported on something this week that I think is near and dear to a lot of New Englanders' hearts, and that is apple picking. But it turns out some farms have had no apple harvest at all. What happened? Yeah, it's been a tough year for apples. Um, Basically, in May, there was a really cold night that killed a lot of the apple blossoms right when they were starting to bloom. And it killed the baby apples that were already starting to grow, but still really tiny. So many of the apples we would have picked um, this fall were killed before they even got a chance to grow. There, you know, there's... I'm wondering what happened, though, with these storms and these freak weather events we've had this year. It was it was a tough spring, tough summer. Uh, is the scale of different damage, though, different this year than it has been in the past? Yeah, it's true that weather is often a hardship for, for all kinds of crops and fruit crops in particular. But an official with the state's Farm Service Agency told me this year was really unprecedented. We also had a big freeze, if you remember, in February that killed a lot of the peach crops um, right when they were starting yeah, to grow. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And the combination of those two events damaged hundreds of acres of fruit. Um, I also talked with the state's climatologist who says, um, you know, climate change is really fueling more uncertainty with the weather. And as the atmosphere warms up, um, things are changing in in a few different ways for fruit crops. And how much is climate change playing into this, really? Well, there's a, f- a few different ways it influences fruit crops. Um, f- fruit crops like apples and peaches need a certain amount of cold weather over winter to be dormant, sort of chill out. And then warming temperatures in the spring tell them to wake up and start blooming. But seasonal patterns that trees have adapted to over thousands of years are changing now as things get warmer. Um, so trees start to wake up earlier, but the threat of cold weather stays. Um, and those cold snaps can do more damage if the trees have already sort of woken up. There's also growing research into how the warming climate, um, especially 
especially the significant warming we're seeing in the Arctic, could be making cold snaps more unpredictable. And those things combined with the heavier rainstorms we're seeing and the potential for more unpredictable drought is creating this really tough situation for apples. So there's always been some freak storms and weather, but it's just getting more unpredictable and we're seeing more more, um, rapid swings back and forth. Yeah. Apples are a huge part of our region's agriculture, obviously. How are farmers planning to, to adapt to events like this? Well, this fall, some of the farmers I have spoken with are relying on sales from their farm stands, you know, baked goods, other fruits and veggies they grow. Some are buying apples from other growers um, that did have them to sell out of their stands, um, you know, opening up hiking trails or hosting events on their land. Um, many are also encouraging people to visit the apple farms that do have apples, you know, farms at higher elevations fared better. Um, as for the future, some farmers said growing different kinds of apples could help, ones that are more geared towards warmer climates. Um, in Georgia, people farmers are starting to try new kinds of crops entirely, like citrus or even olives. And in Washington state, um, scientists are developing this spray made out of wood pulp that can help insulate fruit from cold. So there's a few creative solutions also going on. And we don't want to give the impression there are no apples. You should call your local orchard to yes, check. Yes, yeah. there are apples. <laughs> okay. Call your local orchard and, and, and visit if you can. Ethan, I want to turn to a story that you wrote this week on growing concerns about literacy in New Hampshire. What do we know about students' literacy, ch- literacy challenges? right now? Sure. So um, in the last few years, uh, proficiency as measured by standardized testing in New Hampshire has dropped. So in in 2018, 54% of New Hampshire third graders were found to be proficient in reading. By 2023, that had dropped to 46%. Uh, A lot of that has to do with COVID-related learning loss, but it has put a spotlight on literacy. And there is a, a way that ha- traditionally literacy has been taught in the last few decades where context clues are used. It's called the three cueing system. And essentially, if you might you might have a picture next to a word as you teach a, the, the word to a child, and the child might guess based off the picture or the context of the story. It involves a lot of guessing words rather than sounding out words. And this is something that a lot of educators are trying to change. There's research that shows that this type of reading instruction is not actually effective. Uh, What's more effective is to do a more phonetic approach that actually sounds out the words rather than trying to use the context. So amid all that and amid these concerns about New Hampshire's proficiency, there is a bill next year that would, first of all, require that that schools use what's called what they call the science of reading, which is sort of the more uh, evidence-based approaches that have emerged in the last few years, um, rather than these kind of uh, outdated ones. And they would also increase how much we test young kids in schools. We'd actually test them three times a year between kindergarten and third grade to make sure that students are not falling behind. So that's the proposal that's been put forward in this bill. Now, what are our lawmakers really proposing to do with this this bill as far as implementing the curriculum? And, and are they talking to educators and, and teachers about this? Yeah. So the bill, as I said, um, would increase the the testing. So right now, testing standardized testing in the state, annual tests start in the third grade. They go from the third grade to the eighth grade. Um, kids in, in early elementary school are not really tested in this way. Um, and so this would be kind of a first and it would be frequent, not more more than once a year, as I said, three mm-hmm. times a year, the beginning of the year, the middle of the school year and the end of the school year. The sponsor of the bill says that's important so that you can actually track a child. And if a child is falling behind in the middle of the year, you can you can kind of uh, have metrics to, to get the child back on track. So, but of course, Ethan, there's so much teach, teaching that goes, uh, standardized teaching, uh, standardized testing rather that goes on in classes throughout the year. What are teachers saying about that? Yeah. So this shift in the science of 
reading, as it's as it's called, uh, has largely been embraced by by most reading specialists in the state. Uh, you know, by also by elementary teachers. But what they say is that the transition is more difficult than it sounds to try to get all all teachers trained on these new approaches, first of all, and to try to get the curriculum to change as well. So that's, they say that this is, it's not easy to turn on a dime here, but that everyone seems to be supportive of these better methods of reading. And we'll see if this law passes, how that might affect things. I want to ask you both before we go, is there any other reporting or stories that uh, you want to share, something you might be working on or something we should be on the lookout for? Let's start with you, Mara. Uh, yeah, th- this week I, I got to drive out to Portsmouth to see um, this historic house get lifted into the air um, to save it from climate change. So I'm I'm really excited to to work on a story about that. All right, we'll be watching for that, Mara. And how about you, Ethan? Sure, I've been covering cannabis, so next year seems to be a, a um, really good chance for supporters of cannabis legalization to pass something with the governor endorsing one method. But I think one of the questions up in the air are, what do farmers think about it? Because un- because of federal rules, uh, laws, you can't you have to grow all the cannabis that you sell within your state. And so this will be a, a huge transformation, a potentially huge opportunity financially for farmers in New Hampshire. But the question is whether they feel like they want to jump into that and how much of that growth will be local. So I'm working on a story right now about that. Marijuana and apples. A lot of farming talk today on the (laughs) recap. Thank you both so much. You can find more of Ethan's work, by the way. Ethan DeWitt, the education reporter for the New Hampshire Bulletin. You'll find more of his work, by the way, on NewHampshireBulletin.com. And Maura Hoplamazian, NHPR's energy and environmental reporter. You'll find more of their work at NHPR.org. Thank you both. Thanks, Rick. I am Rick Ganley, and this is NHPR.